1: Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. And with me, as always, is the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. How are we doing today? I'm
2: doing, I believe, by the grace of God and feeling uh, really good. And it is so good to be back with you, Chad and Tony. Missed you guys uh, and missed this whole setting and missed my opportunity to fellowship with all my brothers and sisters through sharing the word. And it's just... I'm sorry, that was one of my... Longest. Doing great.
1: <laughs> all That's praise great. To, yeah, glory yeah, be to the Lord God. Amen. And we'll we get back. It. I got to ask you some more questions about that. So we'll get back to that. And also with us, as always, as the show's producer, Tony Palacio, how are you doing today? Blessed in Jesus. That's sure. all you got Thanks to say Lord. after his intro. But nonetheless, uh, awesome to have Joe back, obviously, to come back to the Good Fight Radio show and hopefully share with you guys some important truths today. And I know uh, he said today he's feeling pretty well. Um, you know, I think what probably about a week ago or two weeks ago, I think uh, I was over at your house and I had shared with them, you know, we were talking theology and stuff, and I was like, oh, it just felt more normal, you know, where it was just like, okay, this is more normal than before, you know, you're obviously much t- much more tired with everything from COVID to your heart and stuff. So it's nice to obviously have you back and not be stuck just me and Tony talking on these things. You, know? <laughs> you guys did great, man. So <laughs>
2: praise God. And you did a great job and the elders as well, preaching when I was gone. I was like, Lord, I know you could take me in church. and be fine. But man, I want to mm. stay in- and." <laughs> There is <laughs> some fruit before I go to be with you. As so much as I'd love to be with him.
1: And that is a perfect segue into what we're going to be talking about today, because this is a subject that I know that a lot of people, when it comes to Good Fight Ministries, a lot of people come not only because of they sold their souls for rock and roll, Hollywood's War on God, submerging church and different projects. Obviously, the Good Fight has done over the many, many years, um, 30 some years, 30 plus years. That's all. Yeah. I'll just keep it at that one. 30 plus <laughs> years uh, that Good Fight Ministries has been around. But another another subject has to do with salvation, soteriology and how people um, relate not only to the gospel, but also what does it mean? once somebody has said a prayer to, quote-unquote, receive Christ, right? So we wanted to talk about that. And if we're going to have you back in the studio, let's talk about this because these issues are always something that's coming up. We, ta- we talk about later uh, in the week this week, we we'll are talking about evangelism and even how, you know, your son Josiah, you know, my brother-in-law, goes out to share the gospel, and he's doing a great job. ton of people come to Christ, and he's working with some people in the Philippines, and the next thing you know— wait a second, you shouldn't be preaching that repentance stuff. And, you know, you just say a prayer and you do this thing and don't preach anything past that, you know? And it's like, this is an issue that doesn't stop with these issues we're going to be talking about. It doesn't stop simply because, oh, we're just talking soteriology. No, it even is a gospel issue a lot of times because what people are saying is a gospel doesn't seem to really be a gospel message. So uh, Joe is going to be handling, we're going to be handling together some refuting, some of once-save-always-save's I guess logical arguments. Is that what we're going to go yeah, with? Not then?
2: so much uh, the scriptural arguments. We usually do with that, but mm-hmm. we're using uh, what they would think would be logical arguments based on scripture, popular arguments that a lot of people run into on forums, chat forums, with once they've always seen people and folks. And so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be dealing with the so called logical arguments and see if they're scriptural or not.
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And I think this is really, really important because these are the things, as Joe already mentioned, you're on these chat forums, you know, maybe you're on the, these groups and these are typically the things that you've seen thrown at you, right? These are the things that, well, I got, here's your gotcha question, right? Because they think that they can use this rhetorical argument and they use this logical argument and be like, I gotcha. But I think there's a great way to answer them and Joe's going to help us out with that. So, I think num- we have seven of them, right, bro? Yeah, we, got, we do have seven of them. So let's start off with number one. God is not an Indian giver, Joe. <laughs> Go. <laughs> well, it's
2: interesting. Uh, read through the old, through the old and the New Testament, and you see that while well, He's not an Indian giver, uh, a so-called Indian giver—I don't like that even that phrase—but uh, He, He, you know, we can leave Him, you know, uh-huh. and we can forsake Him, and we can reject the life that He's offered us. He's given us. I mean, He's given everybody that is alive life physically. Uh, does uh, the Lord gives, and the Lord? Takes, takes away. away. I mm-hmm. think Job uh, Joba might have a problem with that. <laughs> but anyway, just the idea of when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to life, it's real clear that we're the ones that leave the life. You know, Jesus bids us to come to Him. Come to you, all of you who are who are heavy laden. You know, weary and you know heavily burdened and so forth. And we're invited. But the scriptures are really clear. We can commit an apostasy, and that means we depart from the Lord. And we remember, when in John chapter six, verse sixty six. So many of his disciples followed him no longer, and Jesus said to Peter, "Peter, will you too go away?" And uh, it's it's forsaking him. And in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one, the Lord promised, and praise God, we love this promise. Uh, I, I know where it's at in different places of Scripture because I love it so much. But in Deuteronomy thirty-one, He says He'll never leave us or forsake us. But He goes on to say, "But you're going to become, you're going to turn to idols, idols, false gods. You're going to forsake Me." And He says, He says, "And when you forsake Me, then I will forsake you." So it's just as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. But if we forsake him and harden our hearts and become wicked and live rebellious lifestyles, that's us rejecting the gift that he's offered to us. And we see that throughout scripture, Revelation 2, 4, and 5, to church at Ephesus. You know, he commands them because they've tried those who said they were apostles or not and found them liars and tried, you know, they hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which, Jesus, or he, which he hates. And But he says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. And that's real clear. You can leave your first love. And then he talks about how he's going to remove his candlestick or the the, the candlestick or the, the lampstand from his presence separated from him. So the scriptures are very, very clear that we can forsake him, we can reject the gift that he's given us. We haven't lost our free will. You know, the scriptures very, very, very clear, contrary to Calvinistic, those who are determinist who Claim that there's only you know you're only doing what's been determined like a puppet. Well, they don't like to use a puppet, but they're basically teaching every thought you have, everything you do before you were created was already determined by God. You really don't ultimately have a choice, unless they teach compatibilism. Compatibilism. I'm going to get off in a rabbit trail, and that that teaches <laughs> that that free will is somehow compatible with with determinism. Yeah. But really, it's just they call it soft determinism. But really, it's determinism oh, yeah. because anything you do. You know, God gives you a desire to do what He wants you to do to make sure exactly what He's determined you do. So if a man rapes a child, God determined he would do that before eternity. He has no real choice. God just gives him a stronger desire to do that. And that's worse than temptation. God tempts no man. But He's not, only not He's not just tempting this man, He's determining him to do it, which would be even more wicked. and makes a monstrosity out of our God. And now, man, I hope I get all seven in because we've just got <laughs> off a little trail there. But uh, hopefully that makes sense. We have free will, we can turn from Him.
1: All right, well, let's keep moving down this, uh, this train here. If a believer can be lost, then the body of Christ would be maimed.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a ridiculous argument. The body of Christ would be maimed. Uh, that's acting as though the body of Christ right now, that Jesus is somehow deformed until everybody becomes a Christian because yeah. he doesn't have certain members, part of his body yet. It's a metaphor for us belonging to him and him being in us. And whether someone comes to him or not, he's not maimed. He's complete you know, he's perfect, Telios, you know, he's uh, he's, he's God, the God man. And, uh, and that's so unbiblical too, because the scriptures use this membership. Jesus himself used this membership as a picture of those who are in him in John 15. Mm-hmm. For branch, he said, I'm the vine, right? He's the life-giving vine. We're the branches. If we abide in him, we bear much fruit. But if we Amen. don't bear fruit and we die and wither on the vine or we're withering, he cuts us off. He dismembers that, that branch, and they're cast in the fire and burned, John 15, 6. So that's contrary to what Jesus taught. Paul uses a similar metaphor with the olive tree and the branches of those who don't continue to believe but are cut off in Romans 11. So it's actually contrary to Scripture, but it doesn't affect Jesus as the person uh, because there's a corporate reality that those who believe are in him. Those who reject him aren't in him, and he is who he is and complete, and he's never maimed whether people come to him or not.
1: Amen. Now, this one specifically could deal. Also, I'm, I, I'm guessing this is also going back to a free will argument somewhat, as well, where it says, "One who was born again would never stop loving the Lord or want to commit apostasy."
2: Huh. Well, maybe the first day you get saved, you know, but uh, you return and you turn to Jesus, and then the days that you grow in the Lord and so forth, uh, you know, you fall in love with the Lord, and, and 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 I know, and I and I understand that argument because there's times in our walk where like how could someone turn from the Lord? Mm-hmm. I talked to a very, very, very popular, once saved, always saved pastor, Calvinist, uh, and we had a discussion on this topic. He's very—he's known by most all Christians. And we had a discussion, a little informal, loving debate on the issue. And uh, he said, Joe, I have to admit, because I shared some scriptures on apostasy. He said, these are directed at believers, you know? And here's cases where genuine believers can fall. And then he said, Joe, I have to admit, he goes, I don't preach those warnings but I know a lot of people in the fellowship that my wife and I look at and we say, we know they love Jesus. We know they were saved. And he goes, so it is difficult, you know? He just was, you know, acknowledging that. But, but you know, we can go back to Revelation 2, 4 for that. Many have left their what? Or some have left their first, first, love. first yeah. love. Don't tell me you're gonna automatically love Jesus all the time. In Matthew chapter 2, or 24, end times, 9 through 13, Jesus says, then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and they'll betray one another and hate one another. Those who fall away. And the many false prophets will rise and mislead many, many people. And because, of, because lawlessness increased, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will become cold. The context here is believers falling away because of the increase in lawlessness. And in the Greek, is there's a ho there, there's a ha, a definite article. The love of the many will grow cold. And guess what? The world's already cold. You know, it's believers that leave their first love, it's believers that become cold. And then he goes on to say, but the one who endures the end is the one who will be saved. We have to be careful. We can't just think, wow, I got saved at such and such a day and I'm all, always gonna just be in love with Jesus. You know, we have to be careful because the Bible warns that we can harden our hearts. We read in Hebrews chapter three, some of the strongest warnings about falling away in all the scripture, therefore, holy brothers, and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, so he's mourning the holy brothers and sisters. But Christ, he goes on to say in verse 6, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. And on, on the day of, in the day of trial in the wilderness, so he's saying just like they did in the wilderness, where so many did not enter the promised land, don't harden your hearts. And he goes on to say in verse twelve, take care, brothers. It's not warning non-believers. These, these bluffs, no, God means this. Take care, brothers and sisters, and uh, and and he says, and there will not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God that falls away from the living God. Well, they're just falling away from a confession they had or a profession. It was just an empty profession. They didn't really know God. No, it says here, they don't fall away from an empty profession. It says they fall away from the living God, a relationship with God, but encourage one another, every day they're brothers, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. And the idea there is, is having the, uh, becoming final partakers. Hebrews is a lot about your final salvation, and he's, that's why he's emphasizing perseverance in the faith and unto the end. So it's real clear that you can harden your hearts; your brothers can by the deceitfulness of sin and by getting out of fellowship. To where you 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 you've been out of fellowship so long, where you start to let sin in your life, you start to get hardened toward God. You start to go through trials. Just what Jesus was doing there in Matthew chapter 24. We have to we need to keep our lives lit, our love light lit. I should say we have to keep our love lights lit, man. Our love. In fact, that's what Jesus said in John. Or I'm sorry, Luke 12. 35 and 36, be prepared, keep your lamps lit. He's talking to Peter. Peter says, he wants to know if this warning is for the you know them or for everyone. And Jesus makes it clear, he says, little flock, right after that. And he says, you also are to be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door for him when he comes and knocks. Then a little bit later, verse 43, Jesus says, blessed is that servant or that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, we put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will take a long time to come, and begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and to get drunk. Then the master, that's talking about the same servant who's bearing fruit, giving out meat in due season. If that servant, in the Greek it's referring to the same servant, he has a change of heart. That's what we're talking about. He started good. Loved his master. But in verse 26, then the master of that slave will come in a day when he does not expect in an hour that he does not know. And it will cut him in two, and aside his place with the unbelievers. Where the believers go? Revelation 21:8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, liars, idolaters, all these folks that says will go to the lake of fire. And that slave who knew his, knew his master's will and did not get ready, or acting in accordance with the will, will receive many blows. That slave who knew his master's will. Many blows. But the one who did not know it, and committed acts deserving of a beating, receive only a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and whom it was entrusted much to him, he'll ask all the more. We go on and on, but I think these are more than sufficient warnings that you can leave your first love.
1: Yeah, amen, without a doubt. Well, another one that they would say is, God will not allow any of those who he loves to perish.
2: Yeah, that, just these on their face, these arguments are so, I'm sorry, they're just so weak, because God loves the whole world. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's conditional. Salvation is conditional. The ground of salvation is not, that's what Jesus did. That's not conditional. But whether we receive it or not is conditional upon faith. Are we going to put our trust in Jesus? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, that they would not what? Perish. But he goes on to say in verse 17, you know, which is. To me, almost as beautiful as verse 16, Jesus says, he didn't send his son of the world to condemn the world that the world through might be saved. But then he goes on to warn in verses 18 through 21 that they didn't believe that the only got son of God, they love darkness more than light and so forth. These are the ones that he doesn't want to perish, who he loves and who he gave his life for. By the way, if you're dealing with Calvinists who say he doesn't love everybody, he did not die for everybody because they teach limited atonement, the third letter, then their acronym TULIP, limited atonement. Jesus only died for the elect. John three sixteen through 20 just stares us in the face and we use it for evangelism. And for, <laughs> But guess what? It's great. That passage in itself destroys Calvinism because the world he loves and he gave his son for. Jesus goes on to say, love darkness and went turn to the light. <laughs> so he died for everyone. He loves everyone. And guess what? Most perish. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Talk about the narrow gate, and the broad gate, and few go in the, through the narrow door and stay on the narrow path and have life. But many Go through the broad door, the broad gate, and stay on the broad road and have destruction. So that's not a that's not a good argument at all. Second Peter 3:9, God says, Peter says that God isn't will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. First Timothy 2.4, God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So scripture after scripture after scripture show all kinds of people perish who he loves. Ezekiel 33 is really clear. You know, you have the watchman warning. He says that the watchman doesn't warn uh the people to turn back or to turn from their sin, God's people, uh the blood will be on the, his head. But if he warns them, then their blood will be on their own head. And then at the end, of, near the end in verses, uh, well, let's look at verses 10 and following. Therefore, you, O son of man, sit to the house of Israel. Thus you shall say, if our transgressions and our sins uh, lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as, I, as as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? And he's talking about those that he said he loves with an everlasting love. So we have the freedom to reject or accept his love. And let me give you one more scripture on that, that I was thinking about when we we're thinking of these questions, right? Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira in the book of Revelation. There's a woman there, false prophetess, who Jesus calls Jezebel. We don't know if that was a literal name or he was using a play on words because of the, the witch of the Old Testament, Jezebel, who was a false prophetess and killed had many of the servants of the Lord killed. But this false prophetess is leading Christ's servants, those are those who belong to him, into incredible sin, into committing idolatry, idolatrous acts, and sexual sin. Right there, church members, under her teaching. But you know what? He even loved her. He even gave her opportunity to repent. He didn't want her to perish. Jesus says, and this is in the church of Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, beginning around verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, into great tribulation, because they... Uh, unless they repent of their deeds. So even his own servants, you know, and I will kill her children with death and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. By the way, that's a quotation from Yahweh in Jeremiah chapter 9, 10. And that's where the Lord is using that of himself, that he's Yahweh, but I don't want to get off another tangent, but (laughs) man, he does love everyone (laughs) and he loves his servants, but they can still perish because guess what? They're in idolatry. They're sexual sin. And if you think, oh, but they'll still inherit the kingdom of God. No, read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Don't be deceived, it says. It mentions that, you know, the fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals won't inherit God's kingdom. It says, don't be deceived. And read Revelation one eight. Idolaters go to the lake of fire. So you're deceived if you're thinking that, hey, you can live a wicked life and you won't perish.
1: Well, I think this next one goes right into the heart of Calvinism as well, as you've already mentioned, specifically where we... The argument that God would not allow anybody that He died for to perish, and this, yeah. as you mentioned already, the L, the limited atonement, where the atonement is limited, where He only died for the elect. Yeah. So that's what this would be, hearkening.
2: Yeah, that uh, that's just the whole, the whole idea that Jesus only died for you know special you know people that He wants to be saved and and that He died for everyone is just so such a tragic teaching It misrepresents the character and love of our God, and it it fails to spurn on evangelism. It fails to engender hope. You can't really tell someone Jesus loved you and died for you. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 to the Corinthians, you know, when I first preached to you, and he preached to them in the book of Acts, is that Jesus died for our sins. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. Right there, Paul says he preached, first thing he taught these guys when he shared the gospel with them was that Jesus died for their sins. But in 2 Peter 2.1, listen to this but there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, Mm -hmm. even denying the Lord who bought them." Catch that? These false teachers will be leading God's people astray, even denying the Lord who bought them. Now we've been bought with price, precious blood of Jesus, but he also bought these false teachers and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now even John Calvin, who's Calvinism's namesake, you know. Even John Calvin in his commentary, and I've looked through it in this passage, looked through a lot of the different verses Calvinists used to see what he said on it. And oftentimes he's not a Calvinist, John Calvin, you know. Other times, yeah, he's definitely a Calvinist. And sometimes he's just contradictory. And I believe he was on this subject because he teaches in 2 Peter 2.1 and elsewhere. But here, 2 Peter 2.1, in his commentary, I mean, you can go look at John Calvin's commentary and just do a word search on the word redeemed. You know, and you'll see that he teaches that these false teachers says we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And guess what? These guys, they're not going to heaven. Second, Peter 2.17 says, these are, well without, these are wells without water, clouds carried out by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackest of darkness forever. So don't tell me that people who Jesus died for can't perish. Uh, Paul warns against misusing your Christian liberty. Christian liberty isn't liberty to sin and rebel against God. But Christian liberty is knowing that you can do something in good conscience. It's not biblical. You know, you might play cards, you know, but you have a brother who thinks it's sinful to play cards, you know, but you love that brother. So in the house, you don't say, hey, bro, let's play cards. Just whip it out in front of him because that could cause him to stumble. And he could start playing cards, but think it's in rebellion to God. And then anything not done in faith, Paul says, in Romans 14 is sin. And then he's not walking in the faith. Romans 11, that's really serious if you're not in the faith. Right? You get cut off, and if you persist in a, re- a rebellious attitude, even though you can be doing something that you think you can't do, but the heart re- is in rebellion to God. Because if you don't think that you can go bowling, and God doesn't says God's against bowling, and you start going bowling, you join a b- bowling league, in your heart you think you're in rebellion to God, okay? It's a bad conscience, and it, you know? So Paul warns about, you know, not eating meat in front of somebody you cause to stumble, you know, not drinking wine in front of somebody you think you stumble, and so forth. And it's interesting because in these passages where he gives these type of warnings, we need to have some little, you know, some little bit of application here for our brothers and sisters. How many Christians are going out knowing people struggle with drinking mm-hmm. and they drink right in front of them and then they lead them into drinking and maybe they don't, and hopefully if they're Christian, if they're a true Christian, they're not gonna be getting drunk. Otherwise, they're committed to apostasy because drunk is not in the kingdom, back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. But if you are just having a little bit and you think, well, I don't have, that's his problem if he's like that. That's not graduating the Christian love that we see in Romans chapter yeah, 14. Yeah, yeah. And you can cause someone to perish. So we need to look at our lives. Romans 14, 15, Paul says, if your brother is distressed by what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Ooh. Then verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. So it's a work that God's done that you could destroy. All food is clean but it is wrong for a man to let uh, let his eating be a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9 through, or 10 and 11, it's even clearer. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge, right in this context, talking about eating not foods that are considered impure, impure by the Jews, which is more, more Romans. This is talking about food that was sacrificed to idols, you know, and people think I can't eat food that's sacrificed to idols, you know, but... If it's, yeah, you're doing it to commit a, in some idolatrous acts, you know, like Jezebel's followers were, yeah, you can. But Paul says, e- the food is nothing, you know? But he says, but not everybody has this knowledge. So just stay away from it, if, so you don't cause your brother's stumble kind of thing. But beware somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling of life to those who are weak. For any, if anyone sees one, uh, you, uh, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, if they see you guys have knowledge, you know it's not gonna do anything. Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Don't tell me somebody who from Christ died can't perish. And right, right here, spells it out for us. By the way, that Greek word perish is the same as in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, they gave him only God's Son. The word believers shall not perish. That doesn't mean it means the same thing in this context. But when you look at how Paul uses it throughout his writings, he uses the word perish to mean going to hell. Okay, so this is very, very serious. All right, well, let's do number... You know what? I know we only have a few minutes left, but I'll just give this as a reference in yeah. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. Paul says if we go on sinning, or the author of Hebrews, I should say, so, and we know who wrote it though, uh, St. <laughs> Paul, the Lord wrote it, guys. It spells that argument. We wish we knew humanly, uh, people have their opinions. But he goes, if we go on sin <laughs> willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and by the way, God wills that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And these are those who have received the knowledge of truth, which is salvation. And, we, and then we go on and we rebel and we turn away from the sacrifice that God's made. And that's the context. There's apostasy, rejecting Jesus. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I mean, it was there. And then he goes on to say different things that, you know, they you know that, that take place as a result of this, including that they trample on the Son of God and the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. So these are folks that were sanctified by the blood of the covenant who no longer have sacrifice for sins. And the word sanctified in Hebrews 10 is used for salvation throughout the whole chapter. It's about those who've been saved, been sanctified, who trample in foot the blood of Christ, and there's no more sacrifice for them. So please go with the scripture. Don't go what some preacher preached. Don't inherit your theology. Don't go with what sounds good or what you want to believe. Go with what the Word of God is. God says, and just because guess what? You start dumbing down the warnings, then you don't stop heeding the. Then you stop heeding the warnings, and that's so dangerous.
1: All right, so we move on to number six, which is saved people are saved from their past, present, and future sins. Let's see how fast you can get through that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Jesus said to pray this way. And one of the things he said to pray in the Lord's prayer is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Then around verses 14 to 15, I believe, is where he said, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, or if you don't forgive your brother, neither will you be forgiven. So he made it really clear that future sins May not be forgiven. They won't be forgiven if you refuse to forgive. In Matthew chapter eighteen, verses twenty-three through thirty-five, Peter says, "How many times? Up to seven times do I got to forgive my brother." Jesus tells him about a guy that was filled forgiven ten thousand talents. Ten thousand, the biggest number they had in the Greek talents were the biggest numerical or biggest uh, uh, money, biggest amount of money, like as far as like, don't have bills like we do, but the biggest coinage you use, so he puts the two together, and this guy's forgiven 10,000 talents, yet he goes and chokes a servant who only owes him 100 denarii, nothing by way of comparison. A little bit, but nothing by way of comparison. And Jesus says up to that, he says, then his master, after he would called him, said to him, this is about the kingdom of heaven, and he's telling Peter this, then his master called him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, which Jesus used this cognate Greek uh, this word for those who go to hell till they pay the last penny, which he could never pay until he should pay all that was due to him. Then Peter, then Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, "So my heavenly Father will also do you, each of you, from uh, if each of you." So my heavenly father to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter warns that if we commit apostasy and forget that we've been saved from our past sins, verses 8 through 10. Amen. Okay. That uh and, and then he talks about being like the sow that was washed a little bit later and goes back, back minor, to, and yep. that's a picture of losing that forgiveness. John says, uh, we need to confess our sins. Walk in light is he's in light, we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Christ. Uh, cleanses from all sin. First John, if we confess our sins, He feels just forgive us, cleanse all sins. James five nineteen twenty, brethren, if you come back to Him, guess what? And number seven, we'll deal with next week, with uh, <laughs> next time, with another really yeah, important question, really perfect. cool subject. But really quickly, last one. John five nineteen twenty, James 5, 19, 20 at the very end, brethren, if any of you turn for the truth and one converts and him back, He'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. So when you build a multitude of sins, they need to be forgiven. The good news is He abundantly pardons. He says those who come back to Him.
0: Amen.